Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to episode 15 of the From the Finney podcast with me, Jake and George. We're joined by Peter Ridsdale for today's episode to discuss recent weeks and months at the club and much more. Enjoy. I think it'd be remiss of us not to talk about the great work that Mr Hemmings did for the club. Um, uh, obviously, it's still a sensitive subject, but how's, how's the mood been around the club since his, since his passing? Well, Mr Hemmings did an amazing amount for this football club, kept it alive, kept it alive through the pandemic. Nobody had to worry about getting paid. I know supporters seem to be frustrated. We keep on saying, you know, we paid all our bills, paid the taxman. But the reality is there's a lot of football clubs out there where the employees wondering if they're going to get paid, knowing the tax hasn't been paid, the uncertainty. Just look at Derby County, um, where, you know, people who've been working for them for 20, 30 years in non-footballing jobs, in the sense not players, have lost their jobs. So I think that... um, it's sad that people take for granted the stability that Mr. Hemmings brought to this football club and the, the fact that, you know, obviously his death was a total shock to all of us. He'd been heavily involved on a daily basis right up to the day he died. Um, and uh, I suppose I'm not quite sure whether it's real yet in our minds because it's so recent. And um, I think what we need to do is to, at some point, accept, and that's what Craig was trying to do earlier this week with his statement that, you know, we have to now look forward, not backwards. And um, reflection's great, but we have to look forward. So uh, I think his period in charge has brought great stability to the football club. You know, things that supporters haven't seen, for example, when I came in here, we still owed a massive mortgage on the Invincible stand. He paid that off. Um, you know, we, we bought Springfield's freehold, which we didn't have when I came. There's all sorts of things behind the scenes we haven't shouted about, but has added to the stability of the football club and the assets of the football club. Yeah. I'm guessing you've got some great memories of working with Mr. Hemmings over the years. Is there any particularly fond ones that you, you sort of treasure? It was an interesting 10-year period because, you know, the fondest I've got is, um, obviously, even this week, um, I've come in over my career from a lot of personal criticism, often from people who've never met me. And the one thing that he always did was support and defend me because he saw uh, what I can do. He saw the hours I put in. Um, And despite historical criticism, you know, the achievements that were there at Cardiff and and at Leeds United. And therefore he wasn't allowing, he was like a shield around me in that sense. And I'm eternally grateful for that because, as I say, as we've seen in recent weeks, uh, there are some people on, uh, social media that feel able to comment and often in a derogatory way to the point where I can't believe they're actually using the language um, who've never met me. So, you know, I'm very grateful and uh, supportive of the fact that um, uh, how he was with me personally 
Um, we had some fun times, we had some tough times. He was a very hard taskmaster, but I think the club is better for that. And he could be very generous in, you know, I don't gen- no, most people think generous means cash. I don't mean cash. I mean the way in which he was and behaved and interfaced with both me and, and everybody at the football club. So um, he was a remarkable man and he will be very much missed, not just for his financial support, but for his emotional support. How much... Peter, do you admire Trevor being in football right until the end of his sort of life? Is that something you really admire? Well, sort of being, was, being in it yourself, that's look, such it, an achievement. It, it, yeah, look, it, it's his football, it was his football club. And therefore, you know, when sometimes people talk about um, um, why we didn't spend this, why I didn't spend that, or whether we did this or this, it was his football club. And he chose to get into football on a permanent basis, i.e., by taking a majority shareholding in 2010, having been involved on and off since 1973, I think, the early 70s. Um, I don't think anybody understands the financial commitments that is required to sustain uh, a championship football club. Um, It is the hardest division in which to survive because the competitive demands of the salaries that people want to try and get in the Premier League far outweigh the income you can derive. And I think we've got the second lowest income in the championship. Um, uh, It's a sort of different model in Leagues 1 and Leagues 2. And the the salaries now are very, very different in Leagues 1 and Leagues 2. So anybody who decides they wanted to get into this on a full-time basis and fund a football club at this level um, should be applauded from the rooftops. And, uh, you know, he's putting in during the six or seven million every year but actually during the pandemic up to 15 million a year just to keep us going and there aren't many people um, who are able to do that prepared to do that Um, and uh, I think that's rarely do they get the thanks that they deserve for that. Yeah obviously you've been in football for a long time what is it that keeps you driven every day to sort of keep going? Um. Well, A, I enjoy it. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to do it. I didn't get into it deliberately. I was sponsor of Leeds in the mid-80s. Um, I had what I call a real job in retail. Um, ended up on the board of Leeds and then chairman of Leeds. And um, I've had far more highs than lows, despite what people will suggest. Um, and the highs in football are greater than any other business. And the lows, frankly, are worse than any other business. Um, but when you get up in the morning and you enjoy what you're doing, you give it everything you've got. I also find the criticism, which I was shocked some years ago when it first came, because I was very lucky initially in football that people were very complimentary about the job that the clubs I was at were were doing. Um, But when the criticism comes, it hurts. And if it's fair, you take it on the chin and you try and learn from it. And when it's unfair, it drives you on to try and prove, prove people wrong. And I think this got worse because the immediacy of uh, social media is such that people can say what they want within seconds of hearing something without necessarily gaining the facts. One of the things that surprised me is people say were um, disengaged from the supporter base, but every single supporter who texts me, writes to me directly, emails me, um, will respond to, and actually many I've invited in to meet, some decline. Some, some arrive and the ones that arrive very rarely say very much they're often without the keyboard in front of them they suddenly go very quiet and look I'm happy for anybody to make whatever suggestions they want um, if they are printable 
um, but very rarely do they offer solutions. And this is a very difficult um, environment in which, um, you know, when you're in retail, you can have a very good year, but so can everybody else. When you wake up every morning in football, it's something called a league table. And nobody, you know, you can only have one club at the top. Um, and the reality is every single club is trying to outdo the next club to get to the top of the table. Um, it's a very unforgiving business. So, you know, what drives me? Um, a mixture of I enjoy it. Um, I've got, a, I believe I've got quite a lot of experience, despite what people feel. Um, I've actually had far more successes than failures, but you only learn from your failures. And um, I want to succeed with Preston North End Football Club. I'd like very much to take us to the Premier League. And if I do, I'll walk out that day. Yeah. How much of the criticism do you read um, sort of day to day? Is it, are you too, checking it or? Um, too much. People keep yeah. telling me not to. Um, and look, I, yesterday I spent more hours than I probably should have done responding to some emails that come in. A lot of them were very constructive, but asked fair questions. And uh, one of them was like five pages long and answered every question. I don't mind that because I think if you sit and talk and explain, people can either agree or disagree, but they understand. What I find frustrating is, um, A, some of the language, B, the one or two word comments. Um, you know, you yourself put out yesterday, you know, uh, have you got a question for Peter Ridsdale? And, the, you know, I don't know how many, it doesn't matter you saw all the responses, but a lot of them were, when is he leaving? Well, Fine, that's a great question, but actually, is that a sensible use of your time or my time? The answer is I'm here to do a job on behalf of the family and I'll continue to do it while ever they want me to. But um, if somebody's got a genuine question, we try and answer it. But to put throwaway remarks like that away, I mean, I don't know who they are, what the jobs they're doing, but how would they feel if I asked the same question about their livelihood? They'd say, you don't know what I do. Well, yeah, frankly, a lot of these people don't know what I do. You know, the other thing as well, people say we're not transparent, so we, we, we won't communicate. I have never, ever asked you to send me in advance the questions you're going to ask. I've never hesitated to answer any question you've asked me. The yeah. same on Tuesday in the press conference. Um, the same if I'm stopped in the street or at a, at a game. Same on emails. You know, there aren't any areas, unless it's tell me what X players are earning, because that's between the club and, and the employee. But, you know, a genuine question we try and answer. Um, yeah, I think the, the next point, we'll, we'll go back to the summer. Were you, were you content with the business that we'd done when deadline day had passed? Look, it's difficult to say are you content or not because there's always players that you try and get and if you don't get them, you're frustrated. There's always positions that you like to improve if you can. Um, but the reality is, and this is the bit that I think that is sometimes forgotten. First of all, I don't set the budget. Secondly, I don't determine we can only have 25 players. That's what the league say. Next, people say, why have you kept that player or that player? And the answer is, if they're contracted and nobody else comes in for them, what are you supposed to do with them? Um, so we're never satisfied. You know, our situation is we want to improve all the time. What I was very pleased about is that we got Ali McCann. And I think um, uh, anybody who'd sat through that day here, you know, we were trying from early in the morning. A, to get authority to go up to a level that ultimately got the deal done. Initially, I was not given permission to go that high. Then, St. Johnson not wanting to sell, went missing deliberately, I think, for most of the afternoon. Um, so they couldn't talk to me. And I think it was like seven in the afternoon before we managed to get a deal done with the club. You know, Ali's then in Belfast with Northern Ireland. His agent's in Glasgow. The, the other side are in, um, in Perth. We're here. 
and we hadn't negotiated personal terms and we're trying to get the documents over the line by 11 o'clock and I think you know it was five seconds to spare but that wasn't because we could have done it the day before the day before that St Johnson didn't want to sell and made every effort to stop us getting through to them that afternoon because they didn't want to sell so you know was I happy yes I was on transfer deadline day um there were all sorts of other players you know the the, the summer window we'd probably get 50, 60, 70 players put to us who were available and you look at them and say, maybe, could we, should we, can we afford them? But we've got 20-odd players on our, 28 players on our books. Was there any that we missed out on? Obviously, you spoke there that Ali was five seconds to go. Was there any others that, maybe not on deadline day, but during the window that were close to happening, but for whatever reason didn't? Not close to happening, no. There were, there were some players that, had we got the money or in different circumstances or if somebody had moved, we might have brought in, um, uh, you know, we get linked with players all the time and half the time I read it in the press and I've never heard of the player, never mind whether we linked with them. But, you know, we knew what business we were trying to do. Um, uh, the one position that everybody wants and we always want is a prolific striker. They're the most expensive, the least available, they want the most wages. Um, We'd signed Reese, uh, Emil Reese, uh, the autumn of last year. Um, he hadn't got as many games under his belt last season as perhaps we'd hoped, but this year's hit the ground running. Um, but they, they're hard to find. Um, so would we if, we, if we could have done? Absolutely. But we couldn't. Yeah. Just sticking with transfers, you mentioned the other day that we'd spent roughly, I think you said, four million on three different players. I'm presuming those three were Whiteman, Emil and uh, Ali McCann. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's exactly four million, actually. Yeah. I think it's probably worth pointing out that the frustration from the fans regarding the signings isn't particularly with those three players or the loan signings of Dan Iverson and Sepp, but I think the fact that going back over a few windows, we seem to have, for want of a better phrase, stockpiled a number of probably average players with little to no sell-on value, uh, probably on the wrong side of 25, didn't really come in and fit into the system or poor injury records, whatever it was. What, over sort of recent windows, barring those signings that I've just mentioned, was the strategy? Was it just a case of they were available and we felt they fit in? Or, Well, you know, I, I take some exception to you saying we've stopped by the average players because um, every supporter's got a view on every player. Um, what you have to see with the players is the piece of a, the pieces in a jigsaw puzzle. And um, if you take a team with 11 or 12 top-class players, they're not necessarily a top-class team. And I can think of a few in the Premier League at the moment who've got very, very good squads on paper, but actually I'm necessarily got a very good team. Um, and therefore, what we do with the manager is to sit down, we have a look at who we've got, we have a look at who we'd like to bring if we could. But you've got a wage bill and you've got financial fair play. So, you know... If we've got a player we want to bring in, we have to get somebody out because we're paying their wages and there has to be a market. Um, it's only March 2020 when the pandemic hit for the first time and overnight the transfer market collapsed. So in the summer of 2020, nobody was spending any money whatsoever. They couldn't afford to pay the wages. They couldn't afford to pay the, the, the taxman. Quite a lot of players deferred wages. Over, I think it's 14 clubs have got time to pay agreements for the, the revenue. And we'd got some players who were out of contract that had, in our view, significant transfer, uh, transfer value. 
that nobody wanted. Nobody. And therefore, we went from a situation where we thought we might have some money to play with within financial fair play and with the opportunity to invest. And we couldn't sell them. They wouldn't sign new contracts. And ultimately, they went in January. Um, but for not a lot of money versus what we thought they were worth. The issue with uh, every supporter is, you know, when you bring a player in, if you give them a 12-month contract, they turn out to be world beaters or idiots because they've suddenly left us. If you give them a three or four-year contract and the player, the, the fans don't think they're world beaters, they want to know why we signed them and why they're still here. But it's like everything in the market. If you're sitting in a house and you want to get rid of it because you want to buy another one, you can only get rid of it, presumably, if you're very rich, if you sell the one you've got. and um, the market is not easy. But as I say, let's go back to it. It's a jigsaw puzzle. And let's not forget, for all those people out there who think that I decide who we buy and you know, I decide what the team is, whatever else, the manager is the key determinant factor in who he likes, in what position, how he plays them, which ones he wants to move on, which ones ideally he'd like to sign within our parameters of affordability. Different managers have different views. Yeah. Just going back to the two Bens, Peter. Is that a regret of yours? Do you look back on that with regret on what happened there, given the value of those two players, or do you try and not live with regret in this business? I don't know what you mean in the sense that, you know, if somebody asked me that question yesterday and said, you know, why did you let them go? Why didn't you sign them early or whatever? Let's just go back to what I said a few minutes ago. In March 2020, they'd got 15 months to go. Nobody knew we were going to get a pandemic virus at that stage, we've been in the top six all season. We'd hoped that we'd get the playoffs and we'd hoped we stood a chance of getting promoted. We didn't. Both of those players were offered more money to stay than any single players on at this football club and increases of over 100% on what they're earning. They said they didn't want to sign or stay. So last summer, we would have looked for you know, perhaps given that was their stance, even though we were still trying to persuade them to, stay, to move them on, nobody wanted them. What were we supposed to do? So when you say we've got regrets, the biggest regret I've got is in the past, we've got a lot of money for players that I still raise my eyebrows about how much we got for the transfers versus what we would perhaps have perceived their value. Um, and in their case, we got little or nothing for their value versus what we thought they were valued at. But you, unless you're, you know, smarter than me in terms of what was coming. Nobody saw COVID coming. Yeah. Just another area of the squad, you know, midfield. I think we've invested quite heavily there in terms of uh, Tom Bayliss, Brad Potts and Ben and Ali recently. Um, do you think that level of investment could have been used in other areas of the squad, given how strong midfield was anyway? Um, is that a fair comment? I said on Tuesday that um, if he gets three out of five right, two out of five right, it's pretty good going at our level. Um, individual players are identified and the manager says they want them or they don't want them. They ask us to try and get them. And every player we brought to this football club that is still here, the manager at the time wanted those players. So my job was to get the authority from the owner to spend the money, then try and sign those players. Do I think we've got a very strong midfield? Yes, I do. Um, do I think they've all worked? The answer is to varying degrees. Um, you know, some have worked out better than others, but it doesn't mean to say they're not valuable members of the squad. You only survive over a season, particularly since transfer windows came in 2002, by having a strong squad. So if you get injuries or suspensions or whatever, you've got somebody else who can step in. And sometimes the person who steps in 
knows that they might be in for two or three games and then they're, they're happy that they're part of the squad when the other person comes back. If we had 25 players, every one of whom had the same ability and talent and fitted into the squad the same way, you wouldn't keep them happy. So you have to have a variety. But let me stress, the starting point with the squad isn't with me. The starting point with the squad is how happy or satisfied the manager is with the talent available, the number of people in each position, and then the manager identifies from a list that we can think we can afford his preferences of us trying to go out and sign players. Having said all of that, if suddenly becomes somebody becomes available, we think it's a massive talent we can't miss out on, and we can afford them, we go and try and bring them in. Yeah, I think Alan McCann's a good example of that. Yeah. What do you make of the recruitment of wingers in recent years? You know, we're playing a 3-5-2 at the moment. I think Anthony Gordon found that frustrating last season. Is that frustrating for you to see, you know, quality players come in, but perhaps not uh, hit the ground running as hoped? Um, every player we sign, I want to hit the ground running. Yeah. They don't all do so. Um, you know, Andre Green we brought in yeah. however long ago, 18 months ago. Didn't do it for us. I read somewhere this week is the leading goal scorer in one of the European competitions. Yeah. Um, you don't bring players in that you think won't work. But what you do know is when you bring players in, they may not work because some do and some don't. But again, I'll stress the tactics, the strategy, whether we're playing 4-3-3, whether we're playing 4-4-2, whether we're playing 3-5-2, that's not my determining factor. That is up to the manager or the head coach at the time and the players we put in the squad are to suit his requirements for how he wants to play. Yeah. Just moving on from sort of transfers, I know you asked about this on Tuesday. Just how, how the number of sort of fans saying how disconnected they feel at the moment. How concerning is that for you? Well, it's obviously uh, it's concerning, but I'm not quite sure what it is. Look, we had a period of time when fans weren't in the stadiums. We had a period of time, which is the same period of time, when we weren't allowed to have face-to-face meetings or to talk to supporters in the same way that we've done since um, we've had fans back in the stadium. Um, I've already pointed out that during this period, everybody who talks to us will respond to. Um, I spend a lot of my time uh, interfacing with supporters. We've introduced a fan zone. We did the three for two. We did five pounds for Mr. Hemming's um, game, the, the, the Derby County game. We've taken more initiatives. This week, again, I saw, um, uh, I think it's now the Preston Collective, what was Preston Underground, um, and we've afforded them facilities if they want them. Uh, we've said we'll meet them on a regular basis. Um, we've also said any other fans groups, whether it be individuals or collective, we will meet at any time and talk to them. Now we're allowed to. Um, I'm intrigued as to what it is the supporters want that we're not giving them. And if they do want something we're not giving them, why don't they talk to us about it? My phone is yeah. probably the most readily available phone number that there is out there. So is my email address. When they say disconnected, what it is what is it they want? As I say, they wanted a fan zone. We've given them one. They wanted more flexibility ticketing. We've given them that. They want to talk to us. I'll talk to people anytime, as you know, which is why I'm talking to you. Um, if they do, I'm very disappointed because I don't want to be disconnected from the fans. You know, I was a supporter who ended up getting the chance to be in the boardroom and then running football clubs. I understand but what I don't understand is what it is they want that we're not giving them in terms of communication or availability. I was talking to a chairman of a football club that we've played very recently, I won't say which one, who couldn't believe that I answered emails from fans. He says he sticks his in the bin. I answer every email. Yeah. 
I think apathy is a word that's going around a lot, which probably brings you back to what you've just said. But is there any sort of initial thoughts on how the club can turn that around? Is it something being discussed at the moment? Well, look, we're, we're concerned every day. Every time you write a piece, uh, George, you, you write that there's a disconnect or apathetic or whatever else. And I find it frustrating because you haven't suggested any initiatives either. You know, you're just as much in a position to suggest things as, as the supporters are. So you tell us what the fans want. You tell us how we get rid of some of the apathy. Is the apathy because they think we should be getting promoted and we're not? It's a tough league out there. We've got the second lowest turnover in the championship. We've got the fourth lowest wage bill in the championship. We're right up against financial fair play because our turnover is so low. What is it that fans want us to do that we're not doing? Apart from winning football matches. And that's the bit that I want more than anything else. Somebody emailed me yesterday and said, uh, can you describe what sort of football you want to see? I said, yeah, winning football. Because it starts there. Yeah. After you win regularly, you can then decide how you win. But if you're losing, you don't want to really lose and think, oh, that was exciting. I've just lost yet again, 4-3 or whatever. Is that really what we want? Yeah. What have you made of the atmosphere at, at Deepdale this year? Well, it depends when you're talking about it. I thought against Swansea, it was outstanding. I thought against Liverpool, it was outstanding. Um I understand fans get frustrated in some games, but um, you know what is what is remarkable this year versus last. Of course, we didn't have fans in last year. We've lost one home game this season. I think last year, if my memory serves me correct, if I'm wrong, I apologise. We lost the first five home games. So, yeah. you know, I'd love people to tell me what it is that they think would assist, help, whatever that is practical. We can do. I never, ever dismiss any suggestion if it's real, doable, you know, possible. I mean, people say things like splitting the cart. Well, the difficulty in that is it costs us twice as much to police a game because obviously we'd have to put police and stewarding in. The concourse doesn't lend itself to that. And by the way, the rest of the ground's half empty anyway. So when, yeah. when you bring, you know, a Blackburn or, or refrain from saying the obvious team or whatever um, that might come with a big away support, if you split the cop, you're suddenly restricting capacity to 16,000 or something. Well, I've already said our finances, we've got the second lowest turnover in the division. Yeah. What would you say to those people that are saying they're disconnected and that's confusing you? What would you say that there's this to be excited about to come and support us every week? What do you think they are missing? Um, well, I don't know. They need to tell me, don't they? They're the ones who are apathetic. And I don't mean that. They criticise me for saying that. But what I'm saying to every supporter is, what is it that you want that we're not delivering apart from if it's winning football? I can't affect that. You know, at the end of the day, it's the team who play. I don't play. I do my bit in trying to put a squad together for the manager. Um, but if there's anything outside of what happens on the field that fans think we ought to be doing to assist, help, whatever. Um, you know, somebody said to me this morning, oh, well, you know, other clubs are doing initiatives like... Um, you know, they don't charge the kids more than five kids to get in, five pounds to get in or whatever. Our season tickets for under-11s are free. We're trying to attract young supporters. You know, unless we pay them to come, there ain't a better price than free to get in, is there? Yeah. Do you think some of the big occasions this year have been damaging in that regard in terms of Blackpool, the opening day, the Derby game, um, Liverpool in the Cup, Full House? I know we gave Liverpool a good game, but... Um, do you think that may have played a part? Um, well, look, as you've already said, I thought we were outstanding against Liverpool and frankly thought we should have won it. Um, 
obviously I'm very disappointed if we end up with big followings and we don't deliver on the pitch. I think Derby was a strange week for everybody, the football club, and I don't think anybody truly understands how it impacted the players. You know, they saw Mr Evans every week. Um, and therefore, you know, we, we didn't get beat. Frankly, we probably could and should have won it with a one-on-one last 10, 15 minutes. But we didn't. Um, so was that disappointing? It was great to see the crowd. Um, we didn't lose, but of course I'd have preferred to win. Um, frustrated to say, you know, everybody doesn't thinks I don't understand that I wanted to win at Blackpool more than anything else, probably more than any other supporter because they're not getting the abuse I'm getting for the fact we didn't. Um, and Nottingham Forest fan base was unbelievable on, um, uh, on Saturday. But so was the fact we had 307 away supporters at Bournemouth. And what a great night it was to see those people take the time, trouble, cost of going all the way down there and seeing us beat Bournemouth, the only team to beat them. So, of course, I want to deliver, but I can't do any more personally to deliver on the field. I can only yeah. do things around the occasion. goes without saying that you feel the whole environment at North End at the moment and the culture and the squad, the management is something that fans should be buying into more than they are at the moment. Well, look, I was brought up to believe if you supported a football club, you supported a football club. And you understood, probably unless you're at um, you know, Liverpool or Man United or Man City or whatever, that you're not going to win every game every week and you're not going to bring silverware home every week. And with due respect, Preston North End, it has no history of doing so. Um, and as the supporters still around from 1888 to 1889, um, the reality is that... Um, uh, I think our supporters hopefully will get behind the team, will get behind Frankie and, and, and the players. I do think there's a bit of, um, he wasn't a name, the manager we appointed, and therefore he's almost started without the goodwill, which I think is disappointing. Um, I don't think David Moyes was, I mean, he was, he'd been a player, but, you know, David Moyes was number two when he took over. Um, so was Billy Davis. Um, what I would like to think is we all got behind the manager, the backroom staff and the team gave it our all. And, you know, ultimately results will come. And if they don't come, you know, ultimately we'll have to make decisions. But at the moment, there's um, an unfair negativity, in my view, um, to where we're at. And we're five points off the playoffs. People laugh at me and say, you know, is he kidding himself? We're five points off the playoffs. And in this division this season, as we've proven, in recent weeks against Coventry who were in the top six when we played them, Luton in the top six when we played them, Bournemouth who were top when we played them. If we get consistency, we can beat anybody. What we have to do is to get the consistency in there. Just on sort of like the football side of things, what what do you make of the style of play and the formation that Frankie has implemented to, to the squad and the side? Um, I think it's very difficult for me to comment on that because, um, you know, first of all, that pre- Supposes that I'm, a, you know, I'm in a situation to comment on that. Everybody has a view, the supporters have a view, but ultimately the football professionals decide what they think the best formation is uh, to get the best out of the players they've got available and to get the most points because that's what they're challenged with. I'm surprised that people think it's boring, I have to say, having seen every single game. I mean, somebody yesterday said to me, it's the most boring football I've seen. And when I looked at it, they've been to three games in the last two years. Um, Sheffield United got promoted playing 3-5-2. England play 3-4-3 most of the time. You know, paying three at the back. Last year, one of our best away performances after Christmas was at Blackburn. We beat them and we played 3-5-2. So 
look, I'm not here dictating to any football professional what shape or um, what system to play because that's not my job. That's the football management's job. Um, uh, they've chosen with our current squad to play 3-5-2 more often than not. But again, I had people ringing me up and ringing me up and ringing me up under Alex and saying, we only play with one up top. Why well, we can't we play with two up top? So we play 3-5-2, which got two up top, and some of them don't like it. That's not my... Uh, I don't know how to comment on that, frankly. Yeah, that's fair enough. I think on the formation and playing two up top, I think it's it's the way that the style's implemented, not necessarily the fact that we are playing 3-5-2, but the way that we're playing that shape, if that makes sense. Well, I hear what you say, but you know whether I agree with you or not, ultimately, as I said, my starting point is I want to win football matches. And yeah. if I don't win football matches, I want to not lose football matches, and I hate losing. I've been very lucky that since 1987 or something, whenever I first became a director of a football club, I've won more matches than I've lost. I'm very lucky. Um, I hate losing. And um, all I will try and do is to encourage the manager, whoever the manager of this football club, at any moment in time, give him the tools as best I can to do the job as he sees it. And I don't interfere in uh, shape, how we play, formation, team selection. I don't. There was quite a bit of reaction from, obviously, the press conference that you did the other day from supporters to your comment about feeling that we we could finish in the top six. Obviously, we could. Like you say, we're only five points off, but I think a lot of supporters felt that that was an unrealistic thing to say. What What is it that you've seen that perhaps they haven't that makes you think that? Every game? I think there's probably supporters that have seen every game and still think yeah. that, to be fair. Well... I don't know how many supporters have seen every game this season and, you know, maybe they do feel like that. But the reality actually is that at the moment, I think anybody can beat anybody. We've still got 29 games to go. I've seen us play teams in the top six and beat them. Um, and therefore, with five points between us and the playoffs and um, 29 games to go, you have to sit here and believe. Now, you might turn around and say, well, I'm kidding myself. Well, time will tell whether I'm kidding myself. Um and if I am, well, so be it. But our aspiration is to be there or thereabouts in the top six, and we'll try our best. Now, I've already said we've got the second lowest wage, uh, second lowest uh, turnover, and the third or fourth or fourth or fifth lowest wage bill in the division. Um, certainly, since we were promoted in 2015, what have we had? The lowest finish was 14th, I think. Um, we'll finish 13, two 11s, and a nine and a seven. Um, so we've finished almost top half every year, almost. And I don't see any reason why the squad we've assembled shouldn't aspire to do that. We've got a number of key players missing that when they come back, like Ched, who, you know, has a style of holding the ball up, except to that um, uh, we're missing at the moment. But having said that, I think Sean Maguire's done a great job. And the amazing thing is actually, statistically, if Sean plays, we're more likely to win than not. He's got the best... Um, uh, he's the one player who's played in more winning games than any other player. Yeah, just on sort of statistics, you said in, in the press conference the other day that on every count we were ahead under Frankie than where we were at a year ago. Hang a second, hang a second before you qualify because somebody put something out. What I said was on the 25 games he's had, that includes the eight last year, versus Alex's last 25 games, he's ahead on every count. I accept that after Saturday, we were two points behind the same point last year, whereas on Friday we were one point ahead. What I actually said was on the 25, his first 25 games were ahead on every single balls in the box, chances, goals scored, 
goals against, 25 plays 25. I accept that the 17 games this season versus the 17 last were two points behind. Having said that, nobody after 17 games last year was calling for Alex, he said. We'd had some very good away performances and wins. Sadly, after Christmas, um, we went into a situation where his last 16 games have got 12 points. I would Whereas say last... his eight games, he got 17 points. Yeah, I would say last season, people were perhaps more confident of our position and, and maybe challenging for something, given Alex's track record of having us challenge up around the top six. Whereas, And yet it was two points ahead of where we are now. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. I think people were probably more confident because of his track record, despite the fact that we're only two points better off than where we are now. Frank, you don't know what Frank is, do you? Well, no, because no disrespect. He hasn't really got one, has he? That's why you don't know what it is. You can only have one by being given the chance to create one. David yeah. Moyes didn't have one when he took over. What did he do in his first five games, David Moyes? Well, so I'm, Frank's I mean, track record was he got eight games at the end of last season and got 17 out of 24 points. All due respect, last season's been and gone, hasn't it? Like it's, you know, we're looking at the the league games this season. But you can't say that to me. You've just contradicted yourself, Jake. You've just told me he hasn't got a track record, and then when I've just referred to a track record, you said that's history. Well, every track record's history. Um, when I say not got a track record, I mean in the grand. Like you know, Alex has come in with a Premier League promotion. He's got Hamilton promoted in Scotland. To me, of I'm course. not saying that last season isn't a track record, but it's not really much to judge a manager off. Eight games. I agree, so don't judge him. Give him the chance to see what he can do. Well, that's what I'm saying. So I'm judging him off this season and where we're at. Two and points behind last year and then we fell apart the second half of last season. But from an Until attacking... Frankie took over. From an attacking point of view, we're behind on everything this season versus last... Well, we're our Alex. first five home games last year. Lost everyone. We've lost one home game this season. Look, the situation in football, Jake, which is very, very difficult, and I've seen a lot of managers... The reality actually is that picking a manager is probably the hardest job in football because some managers go to a club. There's a, a manager at a club we beat recently at, at Deep Down who, in between his two stints where he is, I would argue hasn't been that successful. But his previous stint where he is and his current stint where he is, he's doing really, really well. I bet the other clubs hired him because of his track record, but actually it didn't work there. It's a very, very hard job. And all I can tell you is the players here today believe in Frankie. They think the coaching sessions are refreshing. He's got all his coaching badges. Nobody gives him the credit for the hard work he's done in to get his coaching badges. You think he's a nice guy. You want to see what he was like with the players yesterday. He can be a nice guy, but he's also a tough guy. He deserves his chance based on the eight games he had at the end of last season. And so far, we're two points behind where we were at the same point last season. And at the second half of last season, we fell apart until Frankie took over. So time will tell. But when you go out there in the external market, you know, you look at this player, uh, that manager and this manager, and then they want to sack all the backroom staff. And that might cost you millions of pounds and people who are working hard lose their jobs. At the moment, we've got somebody who cares passionately about succeeding, who had a trial of eight games and succeeded very, very well, who's two points behind after 17 games. In the main, if you hire a manager and give them 17 games and say you've made your mind up, you get laughed at. So our view, and Frankie knows and everybody knows, is everybody is judged ultimately on winning and losing football matches. But you don't do that based on 17 games or 25 games. 
from an attacking point of view, again, we're not performing to the levels that we did last season. But like you say, we've got the second half of the season to come, and I don't. I'm certainly not doubting Frankie's hard work and you know everything that he's sacrificed to get to where he is. But like you say, I suppose time will tell us to yeah, well, time will whether tell. whether that will improve or not. But you know, if we called him somebody else and we got him from outside, you won't be having this conversation with me. Mm, I disagree. I think. I, if they were performing the same way, I probably would. Personally, I would. I'm, I don't know about George what, or anyone five else. Five points off the playoffs. Where where do we think we should be? Not necessarily. Not necessarily looking crowds, at it. Income. Not necessarily looking at it from that point of view. I think if if because personally, I don't enjoy really watching the football that much. Find it quite boring. If if the manager, whoever it was that we were to bring in from the outside, was the same, and you know, five points or not off the playoffs. I think if the football was the same, I'd probably still be having the same conversation, personally. Well, okay. I mean, obviously, that's a matter of personal taste, and, and I respect what you say. I don't agree with you, but I respect what you say. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Yeah, I think on that on that note, we can uh, we can call that part one, and uh, we'll come back for part two shortly. Thank you very much, Peter. It was a pleasure. on uh, contracts Peter obviously we've handed three new ones out this season uh, Emil Reese, Jordan Story, Brad Potts were they all relatively straightforward decisions for you that you were keen to get done early? Well look they're straightforward in the sense that um, I've always said that ultimately who we give contracts is based on the football professionals view of who they want within the squad and um, obviously based on the pay structure so um, everybody just automatically assumes that every player is on the same pay and they're not. So contracts are offered at different levels to different players um, based on circumstance at the time. So what I'm happy about is that the ones that I've been asked to do, we've done. I'm also happy with the progress on three others that we're currently talking to at the moment. And uh, we seem to be inching closer to numbers that might work for both parties. Um, uh, you know, supporters sometimes say, why does it take so long? Or why don't you just give them what they ask for? We've got all sorts of issues. We've got a pay structure. We've got a budget. We've got financial fair play. And players have different aspirations at the start of the negotiation to often what the aspirations are at the end of the negotiation. I know what everybody else is paying at the moment at other football clubs. And apart from parachute clubs, we are now the most competitive we've been ever in this division with our wages. So I would hope to get the other ones completed, um, but time will tell. But um, we'll do it in the right time to make sure that we don't fall out between us. Yeah. Was was Emile's just a reward for his strong start to the season and sort of protecting one of our key assets? You know, he's still young and he's scored 11 goals already this season. Well, look, with Emile, we brought him in from uh, Denmark on wages which in Danish terms were very attractive but in ours weren't as um, uh, in sync with some of the other players 
um, because we didn't know what we were going to get. And once you prove yourself, what we don't do, even though you've got a contract that says we can carry on paying you that for the next three years, what we don't just do is um, demotivate somebody. What we try and do is say, if you're doing the business on the field, we'll try and pay you at the next level up. Um, and obviously it helps us because we added a year to his contract in terms of securing the asset. So it was right and fair for all parties. And we do that all the time. If you look at those players who have been here for five, six years, you know, they came on on very small salaries versus what they're on today. And those that have proved themselves have moved through the pay structure. When you get to a point where they say, I want to go to the Premier League and we can't compete. Well, then, as you know, in the past, when there's been a market, we've sold people. Yeah. Can I just ask about Josh Harrop's new contract last season? Obviously not in the squad at the moment. Is that a concern for you? That he's under contract for another two years or...? Well, look, I think it's totally unfair on a podcast like this to pick an individual player out and confirm whether or not I feel that's good, bad or indifferent. Um, all I will tell you is there isn't a contract signed here for any player that the manager at the time doesn't ask us to do. Yeah. OK. I know you've mentioned the wage bill a few times. Where are we up to with that? Is it in a good place? or? Um, we're tight against financial fair play because obviously we're badly affected by COVID in terms of our income. Um, uh, but um, uh, we've got the highest wage bill we've had in the last 10 years here. Uh, obviously, we've only been in the Championship since 2015. And as I've already said, what's quite interesting externally is, apart from parachute clubs, just about every other club are trying to reduce their wage bill because they haven't paid the taxman or they've got deferred wages. And the average weekly wage for players in our division are similar to that which we've been paid. Um, um, so whilst others are trying to reduce rapidly, we haven't had to do that. We've sort of kept it, it's, it's inched up as we're given new contracts. What it tends to do is if you sell a couple of players at the top end of the wage uh, bracket because they want to go to the Premier League, whatever, you then infill behind at less money and therefore your wage bill's under control. But we are tied up against financial fair play because we've lost a lot of money during the COVID. Just on FFP, quickly, sorry to interrupt you, George. Is, was there not, I, I, I probably have dreamt this, but was there not some um, like relaxing of the rules to make things a bit easier for clubs because of COVID? Or No, what happened was that they decided to smooth the two years. So rather than have an annual FFP during the COVID two years, the two were averaged. But it doesn't really help <laughs> unless you're rapidly really. unless you're rapidly reducing costs because uh, the fact is your income stream. So yes, of course there were some marginal amendments, um, but nothing that materially affects us. Right. Just with going back to Emil, Peter, is overseas recruitment something you think we might explore more often now, or are there certain rules in place that will make that tough? Um, look. <laughs> Historically, um, my instructions were to stay British and Irish um, yeah. wherever we could on the basis that Mr. Hemmings um, could recognise the players. I mean, sorry, British and Irish in terms of where they were playing, not necessarily nationality. So um, if somebody was playing for Charlton and happened to be Danish, he was happy for us to sign them. Charlton happened to be German, happy for us to sign them because he had a benchmark. Um, but what he was uncertain about, and I have to say I agree, 
um, is if you suddenly go to the Polish third division and see somebody who's scoring goals, do you know what the level is? Have you got a benchmark versus the championship? So our recruitment historically has tended to focus on British-based players or Irish-based players, um, but it doesn't restrict when we look at a player and we think it's worth the while and we can afford them and um, as looking and looking and looking and watching the videos and watching the player uh, inside him. And uh, Emil's a good case in point. Um, as it happens now, he wouldn't be getting under the post-Brexit rules. Uh, but we will certainly look broader-based if they qualify, but there's nothing wrong. In the championship level, there's still a, a massive pool of talent out there. Um, that, that, that is available. One of the biggest issues facing recruitment in English football is that um, the Premier League now pay so highly that attracting players who they're prepared to let go is very difficult, even without transfer fees, because they're probably paying on average four, five, six times more than our highest paid player um, at the bottom end of their pay scale. And moving our players out on loan or shifting them to Leagues 1 and 2, where League League 1 are probably paying a fifth of what we pay our players, um, and League 2 less than that. So the Championship really is, has got caught in the middle, where attracting players from a higher level is very difficult. Um, even loan players, where they're looking for loan fees or paying the full salary or whatever, and being able to move out the players that you perhaps think you've, buy, you know, you've gone past and you need to get them out somewhere else, unless you get them back into the championship, you're taking a hit on the salary for a period of time till their contracts expire. And it's the worst it's been in all my time in football at the moment. That gap, though, that, that, that meeting the sandwich bit is the worst it's ever been. Do you think there's almost like a, a time limit on how long things can carry on like this before it sort of implodes. I know this is probably a bit more general football as opposed to specifically North End, but can't keep carrying on like it is, surely. No, I think it will implode. And I think you've seen that with Derby County. And I think that that's the first of what might be many because um, without a Trevor Hemmings or somebody similar, um, keeping a championship competitive is nigh and impossible unless you get to the Premier League and got the parachute payments for a period of time. And um, there aren't, uh, again, I said it on Tuesday, there's you know there's nobody knocking on our door every day of the week saying, I've got a big checkbook, can I buy the football club? Um, the championship is the most problematic part of English football. Leagues one and two are manageable. The, the Premier League looks after itself because of the income streams. Those who've been in the Premier League have got Seven, between 77 and 93 million pounds of parachute payments, depending on how long they've been in the Premier League. And those that haven't have a fan base who expect you to challenge, but I don't know how you compete. And then you've got financial fair play. How how do you think North End getting to the Premier League, if it ever happened, would change the club? Or do you think it'd be a case of we still work within our means, but obviously those means are, are more? Well, you'd always have to work within your means, but as you quite rightly say, the means would be a lot more. Um, I think if we got to the Premier League, it would radically change the club because properly managed um, clubs who've been there and survived fine. Some have been there and come back down again, but you've got the money to go back up again. Some have managed to go back up again, like Burnley did and uh, Norwich. Um, Cardiff did briefly and then they've come down the struggling there. But it changes the financial dynamics overnight if you can manage to do it. And then it's a question of what do you do with the cash? 
And if you manage it sensibly, you can keep some back for the future in case you go back down, but you can spend enough to compete if you know what you're doing. And some stay up, some don't. You know, Leeds went up and stayed up last year, but finding it tough second season. Sheffield United went up, stayed up, found it tough second season. Huddersfield went up, stayed up, found it tough second season. It's still a big challenge because if you look, just look at the wage bill, you've got people at the top of the Premier League with wage bills of three, four hundred million. You've got people who come down who are now in our current division with wage bills of 77 million. Our wage bills 15. Just with your role, obviously, with the EFL, how how much of a part can, not you personally, but the, the sort of role that you hold and, and the others that are in a similar position... How tough is it for you to try and close that gap between where the Premier League is and where the Championship is whilst making sure that you don't have clubs that are going out of business and potentially ending up like a berry? Well, look, about four years ago, I lose track of time, there was a, an unofficial group of clubs which were mainly the clubs that have been in the Premier League. So Aston Villa, Leeds, West Brom, uh, Fulham, Swansea, uh, looking at something called the cliff edge and I was privileged to be invited to be part of that group there were 10 of us I think um, even though we'd never been in the Premier League and we were looking at ways and means of trying to have a, a flow of cash from the top flight through to the championship which meant that you know if you got relegated it wasn't a disaster but also your ability to compete because the money was distributed in a different way meant that every championship club stood a chance the biggest issue with that is there's 14 clubs in the Premier League don't want to vote for it. Um, because when they come down, they think they've got a better chance than we've got of going straight back up again because they've got all this parachute. Um, uh, funnily enough, the, the clubs right at the top of it are happy to talk about it because they don't think they'll ever get relegated. But you need 14 votes to change it. So um, since I've been elected to the EFL board, there's two things I've put on the agenda, as I've said, uh, number one and two. And after that, to be honest, it's in the margin. First is the cliff edge, how we redistribute the money. And the second is maximising our opportunity through media rights, because I think the EFL versus the Premier League is undersold. That's no criticism of anybody. But I think the, you know, the, the, the Premier League gets like three billion from media rights a year and we get 120 million or something. And a lot of that is distributed to, um, uh, to the Football League Cup. So the disparity is enormous. And when I was elected, I said to um, those clubs who voted for me and uh, to the Football League colleagues, the board them, themselves, those two are the key issues for me for the future of English football. Because, and I'm not abandoning Leeds 1 and 2 in that, you know, if we had a different distribution model, it has to make sure there's more money for Leeds 1 and 2 as well. Because... I've already said, how can you have a League One player on, doesn't matter what the numbers, let's say it's 2,000 a week, a League Two player on, let's say it's 1,000 a week, a Championship player on, even if it was 10 or 12, doesn't matter what the number is, versus two, and a Premier League player on 80, 90, 100, 200,000 a week. It, the model doesn't work. The problem we've got is there are 20 clubs in there who don't really care. Um, about the model not working and um, what we need to do is to find a method of engaging them with us. Yeah, that's not something that I envy. <laughs> it's tough. Obviously, you know, we you... went down to Bournemouth yeah. last week and we beat them. What's their wage bill? No idea. <laughs> yeah. 
know. I imagine it's a lot more than five ours. times ours. Yeah, I'm guessing, but you know. Obviously, in recent years, there's been quite a few people that have left the club. Was there anything in particular that happened? They left within sort of relatively close period of time, or was it just one of them things? All I will say is that um, this football club's got a lower turnover of staff than any other football club I've ever been at. And certainly, Joe, as you know, has got an outstanding job at, at Hearts, which we congratulated him with getting at the time. Uh, he was a scout, I think, at Norwich, came in here and did a, a slightly different role to that, a better role than that. We encouraged and paid for his um, uh, his course he was doing for a sporting director, and he got a job doing that. So this is a bit like developing players and seeing them go on to bigger and better things. So um, I think he's to be congratulated. Um, others, for varying reasons, and I'm not saying any individuals, but you know, it either works or it doesn't work, and, and that's life in every facet. I don't know how many people have been in journalism in in your time. You know, whether it be the LEP or whether it be Lancashire Live or wherever it is. You know, the Athletic seem to sort of sweep up loads of journalists from local media groups, and then they got created new jobs behind them. You know. This is a business and people come in and do jobs and people leave um, and they leave for various reasons. But I would guess, and I don't know, that this is probably the lowest turnover of non-playing staff. I've seen, you know, Ben's been here for over 20 years. Kevin's been here for almost 20 years. I've been here for 10. Uh, Hannah in media has been here for eight, I think. I mean, we've got an enviable reputation of keeping staff, but some move at various moments in time for different reasons. But I won't comment on individuals beyond what I said about Joe, who went with our very best wishes. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Just on sort of like, you know, you, you've mentioned there that there's been people that have been at the club for years. Um, what's the environment like when, obviously, you've got people that have been there for ages, it brings lots of experience, but how do you sort of keep yourselves motivated and keep yourselves like looking for new ideas and, and trying to sort of make sure that no one gets bored, if that makes sense? Dead easy. A, not reading Twitter. Um, and then listening to anybody who's got good ideas to share with what we've already got. Look, I know we've got the lowest, what I think is one of the lowest turnovers of non-playing staff. It doesn't mean to say we haven't got um, uh, new people who've come in with new ideas. Look at Hannah in the ticket office who, when we interviewed her, she was the youngest person we'd interviewed for that job. We weren't sure versus the other candidates and she's turned out to be a superstar. Um, and she's got ideas and talks to support all the time. Hannah Broadley came in. Um, uh, initially having been on a sort of work placement type role and then has, has been here permanently. Um, we've just brought um, two new uh, ladies into the commercial team in the last, um, what, 12 months probably. Um, there are new people come in to interface with those who've been here. Um, so I'm not saying we're all here and we're not going anywhere and never, nobody ever joins, but also the way in which you think of new ideas is not just yourselves, but to listen to people. And I've already said, anybody who emails me, anybody who talks to me, anybody who texts me, we will listen. All I can do, subject to what it is and what the implications are, is put it to the people that I work for, because some have cost implications. But I think you've seen recently we've been very flexible. Cost of the fan zone, doesn't matter, we've put it up. You know, three for two tickets for the recent games. Um, uh, we did that, you know. Five pounds from for Mr. Hemmings is um, the game after he died. Now, we will look at all methods of which we can do to listen to new innovative ideas that we can. Um, 
I think we've got the second lowest match day price in the division. You know, we're trying very hard to be competitive. I've already said that under 11 season tickets are free. We'll listen to your ideas all the time, but just because, I don't know, people accuse me of being a dinosaur, which I find offensive, but at the end of the day, um, the role with the EFL, the role at talking to other clubs, the role now I'm on the professional game board, which is the Football League, the FA and the Premier League. We talk to people all the time. One of the reasons I go to games, uh, apart from ours, is to hear what other people are doing and see what other people are doing. Um, we are open to good ideas anytime. Anything that we think can work and we can afford, we'll try it. Yeah. I know you spoke about titles on Tuesday, Peter, in terms of maybe roles that other clubs employ people to do, sort of head of performance, chief exec, head of analytics, things like that. Do you think those roles are fulfilled here and would be pointless bringing people in to do that job? I think we've got people doing every job that any other championship club's got. Maybe some people here do two or three of those jobs. Um, But there isn't an area that other championship clubs are doing that we don't do. We just spread the load. You know, Ben, for example, uh, is not only club secretary, but he's also got some media responsibilities, um, whereas other clubs have got a club secretary and an assistant and media and five people in media or six people in media. I think I, I said on Tuesday, we try very hard to work smarter if we can with the boss's cash or the, the owner's cash um, because for every pound we don't spend on footballers because we spend on other jobs, we have less money to spend on footballers and this is a football club. But all I can tell you is when players come in from other clubs, whether they be people coming from Liverpool, people coming in from other championship clubs, people coming in from Leagues 1 or 2, Everybody has been impressed with the professionalism of this football club, the way in which we go about our business, the tasks we have in hand, and the contribution that all the, the people make. We don't shout about it. And as I said the other day, I think titles are almost irrelevant. The key is what do you do? And do you deliver what's expected of you? Just on yeah. that, I have to say, when uh, when I had Ben Pearson round for the podcast in the summer, he said he was shocked when he went to Bournemouth and was introduced to the assistant player liaison. He was like, what? Why is there an assistant player liaison? What's wrong with just a player liaison? And, you know, does their player liaison do anything we don't do for new players when they join us? You know, we help them settle in. We help them find rented accommodation. We then point out, you know, and find flats for them or houses for them to buy or whatever. We just don't have somebody who does nothing else because we've got to afford it. Yeah. Do you not buy the argument that people put forward that off the pitch were behind other clubs then? Do you think that's nonsense? Well, that's a sweeping statement, George. I mean, the question is, what do you mean? If you point out an area that you think we should be doing off the pitch that we're not, I'll have a look at it and I'll tell you whether I think others are doing it better than us. Um, Do I think we're perfect? Of course we're not. Do I think we've been doing things better than we're doing today? Absolutely. Otherwise, we wouldn't turn up every day. We just let it carry on. This isn't a situation where we we come in here every day and think we're doing everything right. We come in every day and say we're doing some things right. What can we do better and how can we do it better? Because that's how you improve. Yeah. Has James Beat been a valuable addition in your eyes, do you think? Look, I get a bit frustrated when you, you highlight individuals because if I say, yeah, he's fantastic, that's great. And if I say, no, he's not, you say, oh, he's not doing a good job. Anybody who's here who's been paid is doing a very good job. Otherwise, they shouldn't be here. And we recruited James very deliberately. Um, by accident, actually. I mean, um, he, he sort of wrote and, and asked the question about some work. 
Um, it being a Barnsley who got a particular model, he works his socks off, he's doing well, he's inputting into our recruitment for this January. Um, I think he's got a frustrating job because what you do is if he puts 12 players forward, others are putting another 12 players forward. So agents will say, what about this? Or you'll find out that that player might be available from this club or might be able to loan a player from Liverpool who may or may not have been on his radar. He's got a very frustrating job. All I can say is we're far better with him being here than not. Yeah. Obviously, again, I'm going to single out someone here, but I think it's just... Brad Potts has been getting a lot of unjust stick and probably virgin on abuse, whether it is abuse, on social media recently. Where where do you stand on it all? I mean, George and I and you know other people that I've had on the podcast are firmly of the stance that it's out of order. I'm assuming that's your take as well. Well, the thing that frustrates me about social media um, uh, and criticism in general is that I think every individual who's listening to this should look at their own life and look at the job they're doing and say, if the people they worked with or the people they worked for were being as abusive as opposed to honest criticism or uh, honest appraisal, were being as abusive as some people are to some of our players, would they like it? And, you know, we hear a lot about mental health and whatever else. It's almost as if if you play in, in a football team or you work in a football club, you're immune to normal human reactions or uh, how you respond to the way people treat you. And we're all the same, just as you are and George's, whatever. We're the same people in the sense that if people abuse you, the first one is, I suppose, shock, because it's on what basis that you feel you can say that and some of the language they use, et cetera, I think is out of order. Um, and every individual has got a view on every player, at every football club at a moment in time. Um, uh, when we equalised in the last minute against Norwich on Good Friday last year, I didn't see anybody saying, oh, I wish you hadn't scored or we didn't enjoy the goal. Um, I think as a supporter of a football club, what you need to do is to get behind the players and accept that some players in some games will be performing at different levels than the next game. Nobody at this football club is here because they can't do a job. People who are here can do a job. They've been assessed by the people who... Um, are responsible for them in football terms it's the the, the football management um, and they're here because they want them here and they can think they can play a role um, I remember looking when, when I left Leeds and I went to Cardiff and you know I'd been lucky at least to have some very good players and I went to training and saw some of the things that players did and couldn't do and I said to Dave Jones who was the manager oh I can't do this he can't do that I said Peter that's why they're here because if they could they'd be playing somewhere else and the reality is that nobody who's in our team at the moment is the perfect player. They've all got tremendous assets, attributes, work ethic, and they'll have some deficiencies, whoever they are. Um, the amount of abuse that some people get, and you've singled out one player, I find shocking because if we phoned up the people giving that abuse and said the same back to them, and in fact, you know, I got some letters recently when one of our players genuinely went up to thank the fans for being in the game and got such abuse, it was a disgrace. And when he re reacted or responded, I got all sorts of uh, correspondence here on the Monday. What am I going to do about it? And I wasn't sure whether they meant about the supporters who were giving it or about the player that was giving it back. I mean, they're human beings. And it's like, I've... isn't it? Sometimes people think that because the footballers, they, they should 
be able to take it. And it's like, oh, well, they earn 10 grand a week, so they should be able to take it. I've never seen, and I'm sure there are some, and I'd like to think I might be one of them because the amount of abuse I get, and I still get up every day and try and do a good job. But um, there are very few human beings who, by constant abuse and barrage, are better than without it. And I don't see how any supporter feels that any of our players will be better off by being constantly abused. I don't understand it. Obviously, as as a club, there's a duty of care to the players. Um, what what are the club sort of offering or providing that players might need should they want to talk to someone about the mental health? Or is that, again, private? And well, It's private in the sense that I won't say who uses them, but we yeah, do yeah. have support mechanisms within right. the club. And in fact, the Football League now insists that we have support mechanisms in the club uh, for such occasions and for advice, help, assistance. And if it's not provided here, they put them in the right direction. And over the years, employees, not just footballers, have uh, availed themselves of those opportunities. Um, Let me stress, everybody who works for this football club, whether it be a a footballer or any other member staff, is um, a human being who is living in an industry where uh, the pressures have got worse. As social media has become more prevalent, it's been more um, immediate. And if I may say so, it's become more obnoxious because, you know, I was doing the press conference on Tuesday and some of the words with four letters in that were used about me before I'd even said anything, um, what gives people right to say that? They've never met me. And even if they had met me, what gives people right to say that? And actually, how constructive is it? What does it achieve? I don't, I don't get what people feel that achieves and why they believe they can do it. So to do it with a footballer who we want to perform on a Saturday and, and hopefully contribute to us winning, I just don't get it. Counterintuitive, isn't it? Don't get it. I, just, I think you might have touched on him there, Peter, but Alan Brown, obviously, tw- tweeted two, day, two words the other day that gained a lot of attention. Um, Obviously, Alan's someone that wears his heart on his sleeve. You know, you see him at Blackpool punching the floor and, you know, towards the end of the game. What, what do you make of him as a, as a captain and what do you make of his sort of comment the other day supporting one of his players? Look, the problem with social media is in the ideal world, I would prefer players not to be on it. And I yeah. would prefer players, if they are on it, not to react to it. But we don't live in an ideal world. And what I do feel is that as captain of the football team if he sees his colleagues being abused um he in a non-offensive way in my view i know he said absolute joke i think it's absolute joke um uh, felt that it was right to defend and i think as captain every one of our players would expect the captain to defend them um and i think anybody who then says well how dare he I think they've got to stand one step back and have a look at what was said in the first place and whether that's acceptable. And what we are living in an age of, which is frustrating, is it appears that anybody can say anything to somebody else, but they don't like it if somebody reacts to what they've said. I don't understand that. I think if you're going to dish it out, the least you can expect is somebody at some stage might actually react to it. Yeah, yeah, no, I completely understand that. Um, Yeah. Just on, on Alex Neal, you mentioned the other day that you thought perhaps in his last six months here that his sort of enthusiasm and drive for the challenge had changed. Why do you think that was? Look, let me start off with the fact that at no stage will I, have I, or do I intend criticising Alex? We appointed him. 
Um, we appointed him because he was the right manager at the time, and I enjoyed very much working with him. And my biggest disappointment ever in football is when you have to change a manager. Um, and therefore, uh, at the time, um, I felt, and I think he felt, because we had a chat about it, it was probably the time to make a change. Um, it's tough in this business. And um, uh, I think results from January onwards suggested that perhaps that enthusiasm had changed somewhat. And certainly when we discussed him leaving, he didn't disagree. But that's not a criticism of him. And I think it's very important for me to stress that um, I enjoyed very much working with him. And you just look at, you know, he got us to a seventh finish, and uh, a ninth finish. Um, and uh, I think it was the th 14th finish with, with Alex, wasn't it? Um, uh, but at varying times, we flirted with the playoffs and uh, didn't quite manage to get there. So, look, he went with our best wishes. Um, it's always a very, very difficult decision. I can't answer why or how or what. Um, but I sincerely hope that if he wants to, he gets another job in the near future because he deserves to, because he's a very good guy. I know you touched on the youth setup, uh, Peter, the other day. Do you think that is as good as it can be for our club and given how much we put into it compared to uh, other clubs? I think Nick does, Nick Harrison does an outstanding job. Um, I think it's a real dilemma uh, in the championship as to how much you should or could invest to what you can get out the other end of it and particularly geographically where we are. Um, and I say that because um, we are surrounded by football clubs who are either in the Premier League, have been in the Premier League, who spend a fortune on youth development. And the numbers, I was sitting at a um, meeting with the FA the other day, and the numbers of academy input, plus of players who go into academies who actually end up in the club's first team, is scarily low. And therefore, um, our opportunity to pick up a Ben Pearson or um, uh, you know somebody who uh, has, has been at another football club in their academy but then doesn't get the chance to go into the first team is huge. So we can go to Liverpool, we can go to Everton, we can go to Manchester United, Man City, or people geographically round and about and pick up young players who probably can do well in the Championship. And then you've got players who have come through your own academy who are trying to break through into that. Um, uh, we get too many of our players picked off by Premier League clubs at 13, 14, 15, which is disappointing. Um, uh, and those that come through, it's a massive jump between under 18s and the first team. Um, there was a time when we could easily get them out to Leagues 1 and 2 for experience. Um, you know, Ben Davis went to York City when they're in League Two, he went to Southport, he went to Newport, he went to Fleetwood, got real good experience of adult football. Um, today, I can't get our players out into the, into the leagues. There's, the managers are so scared of losing their jobs, they want proven players and there's loads around. So the ability to get the right experience for our own academy lads is becoming more difficult than ever was. So I spoke to the FA about that a couple of weeks ago. They were trying, you know, what about B teams, et cetera. And I was absolutely adamantly against it. Um, but what we do have to do is to find a route map for our players to get from our under-18s or under-19s somewhere into the right level of adult football to get some experience before we come back and play in the first team. At the moment, we're doing it with some non-league clubs. People say, why are you doing that? We're doing it because actually the transfer window in Leagues 1 and 2 is the same as ours. 
So outside of the end of August, we can't put them out anywhere else. And we've tried to get them into League Two clubs or League One clubs. So it's not for the one to try, but at least they're experiencing adult football and I think that's to their betterment. But the academy system is tough. I think its output, its success rate is scarily low. But, you know. How important do you think inspiration is for lads coming through? Or are you firmly of the belief that if these lads are good enough, then they'll get the chance eventually? Well, you'd like to think if they were good enough to get the chance. But look, the, the problem is players develop at different rates. So some people at 17, 18, you know, are going to make it. And some players at 17, 18, you think might not make it. And then suddenly at 21, they do. Yeah. Um, I think most people who haven't made it by 20, when I say made it in and around the first team at this level, are unlikely to make it at the top. But there's always some exceptions. If you've got the talent, if you've got the hard work, if you've got the application, and then you're in an environment that can actually get the best out of you, you stand, you stand a good chance. But I've already said, I think the success rate um, of the academy system is uh, a challenge. I have views that actually the academy system hasn't helped in the sense that if you play for the academy, you can't play for your school team. And I think the problem with that is you suddenly go into this elite environment and if you don't make it, you suddenly, you know, you come out the other end and your peer group have disappeared because the people you would have played with at school football don't really want to know you anymore, they've drifted off or whatever. So I think the academy system has got a lot of negatives given it starts eight. Um, and I think it's got a lot of negatives because if you do an analysis and I haven't got the time, I do believe the numbers who get into clubs first teams are very low versus those who go into the academy in the first place. Yeah. I think, if, am I right in saying a few staff members, youth staff members have, have left in the sort of past 12 months? Um, we've, had two, well, we've had two or three, but again, it's a bit like the football club as a whole. If I were yeah. to go through the whole system, we lose relatively few people. But frankly, you don't want nobody to leave because it doesn't create opportunities for others to come in. Uh, John yeah. Welsh has recently come into the, um, the academy system as a coach because we had a vacancy. Um, unless somebody leaves, you don't create vacancies. Um, I don't think any organisation is healthy by having zero turnover. I also don't think it's healthy if you get everybody leaving every year because it says what's wrong with the company. I think it's a balance, and I think our balance right the way through the club from um, you know here at, at Exton, the first team environment to the academy, I think our turnover balance is broadly right. How have you found it working with the supporters group since they've sort of formed and, and come around? I know you mentioned them earlier on that you, you are meeting them. How's, how's that been from a club point of view? Well, one of my frustrations, to be honest, having been at Leeds and at Cardiff, was that both had very, um, I was going to say vocal, but very uh, involved supporter groups. Um, in the case of Leeds, we had them all over the country. I used to go and speak to them in, Le in London and Cheltenham and the Isle of Man and East Anglia, etc. We had so many groups, but affiliated to a single group. And I enjoyed the opportunity to hear what supporters said, etc. Same at Cardiff. Um, what I was slightly surprised about here is we have relatively few supporter groups that are active at the moment. And I think they should be encouraged and welcomed and we should meet them as often as they want to meet us. So I think it's great. I think it's refreshing. I think it's needed. And we've made it absolutely clear that people want to talk to us, whether it be on a formalised basis or an informal basis, we'll talk to them. 
what's your what's your take on fans getting involved with the board and the running of the club? I mean, I'm not saying that that's even on the table at the minute, but well, look, if you've got an owner or an ownership that sticks 15 million pounds a year in, very few football clubs have that environment. And then expect to be told what to do by somebody who doesn't have a financial interest in it. Um, I've already said that anybody who wants to meet us and meet directors or whatever on a regular basis and have an input can have whatever input they want. But ultimately, the decisions will be taken by the people who've got the checkbook because that's the way it works. If I go to Marks and Spencer's and buy a shirt, um, I don't expect their chairman to say and come and tell me what we're buying next year in the following departments. I mean, I bought a shirt. Um, you might say, what's your view on it? Or do you have any input into what else we should be stocking? And I'll, I'll tell him openly and honestly, but I don't get the executive authority to say it. Um, so uh, when I first joined the, the board at Leeds, we had supporters, representatives on the board. And the biggest single negative we had with that is the minute they walked out of a board meeting, all the fans said, what are you discussing? I said, I can't tell you because it's confidential. Um, then when it got round to really big decisions, they said, Oof, I haven't got any authority to make a decision. I need to go back and talk to the supporter base. You need to make the decision today. You either buy them or we don't. And therefore, it was a very complex environment where they felt compromised. So what I would encourage is supporter groups who meet us regularly, agree what subjects they ought to be talking to us about, but listen to anything. I think there are certain things that supporters should have. Um, veto is a strong word, but certainly you shouldn't be doing without their input, club colours, you know, moving stadium, um, safe standing, whatever. Um, I think you can actually illustrate a number of areas where things are absolutely right and proper that those decisions that are going to affect the supporters, they should have the opportunity to input through whatever environment. But I think that when it comes down to the ultimate decision-making, you know, this isn't my decision. I don't own the football club. The people who write a cheque for 15 million every year, I think I've got every right to make that decision. Will the club be holding a fans forum this season? I think we have a an obligation under football league rules to have two, um, and we will honour that. Cool. I think, George, unless you've got anything else you want to add, or Peter, if you've got anything else you want to say, then uh, we can we can end the recording there. Yeah, the only thing I'd like to say is that for all the supporters who feel um, it's great to have a go at me or anybody else in the football club, if you'd like to do it in a constructive way, whether it be email, whether it be phone, whether it be personal face-to-face meetings, we're here to listen. Um, supporters say, I don't say often enough how important they are, Supporters are the lifeblood of every football club. And without them, you've got nothing. And in fact, the one thing we learned from the pandemic is this business, this industry, this football club isn't the same without supporters. You need supporters involved, engaged with you. And it's far better with than against. Um, So we all value every single supporter of this football club. We want more to come and watch us, more to come and support us. I don't want anybody to feel they have got no access if they want to ask a question because they've got that. But please try and do it in a way that is as constructive and helpful as possible. Writing four-letter tweets about me personally, I might get some satisfaction from it, but it doesn't actually achieve anything. So let's just engage. Let's talk. And that's what we want to do. And that's what we're here to do.